Hey, Justin here. I've got something very exciting to tell you before this episode. Today, the day this very episode drops, is the Holy Ghost Stories Patreon launch. If you don't already know, Patreon is an online platform that allows people like you to support the creators they appreciate to become patrons of that work. Now, you're listening to Holy Ghost Stories right now, so here's what I know. There's a good chance you've listened before and you like what this podcast does. I love that so much. I don't have to explain to you what Holy Ghost Stories is or what I'm trying to accomplish with it because you know. Here's what you may not know. There are two reasons more things like this podcast don't exist. Number one, it's demanding. Every one of these episodes requires loads of research, story outlining, painstaking writing, editing, rewriting, uh, precise recording, sound editing, musical scoring, mixing. Each episode is over 60 hours of work and uh, there's no team, there's no research assistant, it's just me and I love every bit of it. But this is a full-time endeavor. It requires a concentrated devotion of time and energy. Holy Ghost Stories exists because I've made it my job. There's not a lot out there like this podcast because it's just very demanding to create something like this. The second reason there's not more like this is that it's dangerous. What I mean is this, uh, in order to devote the time and energy I just talked about, I had to quit my job, rent out my house, and start eating a lot of rice in order to live for a while with no income. Uh, And apparently that's just not a super popular thing to do. Not many people want to change their lives and risk everything, uh, hoping, praying that people see the value in what they're creating, come alongside and partner with them to do something new. But I thought telling the stories of the Old Testament this way would bless people uniquely enough for them to decide they wanted to give some money each month to make sure it continued. I thought maybe the reason the church doesn't have more people telling truth in fresh and beautiful ways is that there haven't been many people to risk everything and try. And so Christians like you haven't had an opportunity like this. Well, here's one for you. This is your chance to be a part of something new and fun and good. You're the ones, the early adopters, the first ones to find this podcast and believe in it. And you're going to be the ones to make sure it lasts long enough for others to find it. You and I have the power to create things, to fill vacuums, to populate the world with beauty and truth, but we have to work together to do it, especially when it is something new. Now, to thank you for being incredible and becoming a patron of this show, I will be giving you some great stuff. There are bonus episodes and insider notes and discussion guides. You can get copies of the scripts and vote on future stories. The list goes on. And if you join before the deadline, you get a sticker or a t-shirt that says patron saint of storytelling, because that's what you are. Those will never be sold as merch. They're only for patrons like you. Now, I'm excited about all of that extra thank you content, and I hope you are as well. But to be clear, what you get if you become a patron is more Holy Ghost stories. There are so many more stories to tell. We are eight episodes into season one. There will be 10 episodes in all, but I want to do a season two this year and more seasons after that. I want to charm you with the stories of your forebears, Daniel and Deborah and Samson and JL and Eve and Elijah and David and Hannah and Joseph and Abigail and Moses, the incredible stories of the women and men who adventured with Yahweh the way Yahweh invites us to adventure with him. If you want a season two of Holy Ghost Stories, this is how to make it happen. 
become a patron, and we'll make something exciting together. Now, here's part two of The Maestro, The Orphan Queen, and The Guardian. I hope you enjoy it. Where is God in all this? Human beings are very fond of these words, dispatching them with great frequency, especially, exclusively perhaps, in difficult times. There is nothing wrong with this, of course. It is a very good question. The problem is, we often employ this phrase not as a question, but as a statement. A simple, self-evident indictment of an absent deity who's fallen asleep at the wheel or walked away from his post. It still works as a statement, to be sure, an effective expression of lament. But it is, I think, a better question. This is a story about the whereabouts of Yahweh. It's a story about two people and thousands of others who found themselves hot on the trail of a cloaked, active God. And it's a story about the way those people chose to memorialize an undeniable, long-awaited sighting. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The moon rises over Susa, casting light through the darkness of Persia's capital city. Its alabaster rays fall across piles of ash, dotting the courtyards, the streets, the city square, charcoal nests where the Jews sat two days ago, incubating their clutched grief. Now though, the ash is vacant, and the wailing has fallen silent. The Jews have gone inside their homes and fasted from food and drink in unison in obedience to Mordecai's command. He's one of the best of them, a man of character and an official of King Xerxes himself. And when Mordecai says to do something, the Jews in Susa do it. They needed no convincing, of course, the king's recent edict announcing that the Jews should be annihilated from every corner of the kingdom has every Hebrew citizen terrified, heartbroken, confused, full of horror and despair. On the 13th day of Adar, the streets of every city and every town in every province, Sardis to Persepolis, Thebes to Byzantium, will run red with the blood of the Jews. This is a time for fasting. What of all those dusty promises of a Messiah who would come from Abraham's seed? First the exile, the diaspora, and now this. What happens if the children of Abraham cease to exist? Surely Yahweh is watching. Surely he sees their suffering. Surely he knows it's all in jeopardy. 
but it's been two days now, and nothing. As the sun rises on the third day, Queen Esther dresses and clothes herself in her royal vestments. Wrapped in purple, bedecked with precious jewelry, crowned with gold, she is a sight. The orphan raised by her cousin Mordecai, the stunning beauty who enchanted a foreign king, the Jewish queen no one knows is a Jew. The young woman, who just days ago was terrified of being associated with her doomed people, outed and doomed alongside them. But after two days of fasting, that young woman seems different. Like she found something in those hours of hunger and thirst. Like something dead has come to life. Dressed now in her shining garments, Esther emerges from the darkness of her stone chamber into the light of a new day, resplendent, quickened. Since the edict, Mordecai's words have been echoing in her head. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. She was so angry when he said that, so scared. But somehow those words found fertile soil, and now they've taken root. She will go to the king today, to her husband, Xerxes, and, breaking the law, she will go unsummoned. When she speaks to him, if she gets the chance to speak to him, if he lowers his golden scepter toward her, she will put her plan in motion, her plan to plead for the lives of her people, and she will reveal that they are her people, that she's kept her identity hidden from her husband all this time, that she is one of the now condemned Jews. Twice condemned, perhaps, because of this intentional intrusion. It's a strange sensation, knowing this could very well be the day you die. It makes you feel very alive. Esther's pulse races as she makes her way through the corridors of the palace toward the king. For 60 hours, this moment has hung before her, a fixed point on the horizon, her path headed inexorably toward it. Finally, she stands in the inner courtyard, facing into the throne room. From where she is, she can see the king seated atop his throne, scepter in hand, as always. She can also see a guard stationed in the usual place just off to the king's left, hands gripping the enormous axe kept ready to dispense with the uninvited. The king glances her way and locks eyes with her. Esther can barely breathe. Xerxes calls her forward, but she's too far away to read his face. She walks into the throne room, her heartbeat sounding in her ears. My queen, the king says, beaming. He reaches forward the golden scepter as Esther catches her breath. She steps toward him and touches the scepter's tip as she bows, the customary gesture for accepting the king's mercy. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asks her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, 
will be given to you. An exaggeration, to be sure, but a clear indication that his ardor for the woman he chose from among thousands has not waned. Esther, though, does not tell him what she wants. If it pleases the king, Esther replies, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. Hurry, Xerxes orders his servants, and get Haman so that we can do as Esther has requested. And with that, the two most powerful men in the immense kingdom of Persia find themselves responding to Esther's direction. Hastily prepared as it was, the banquet does not disappoint. Esther knew, though, that creating a feast her husband would love had little to do with the food and a lot more to do with how freely good wine flowed. Haman, on the other hand, is most pleased by the company. Attending an exclusive banquet with the king and queen is an honor, and a public one at that, something he can boast about to his friends. With wine in his belly and more in his glass, the king asks Esther what she'd intended to ask him earlier in the throne room. Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. He smiles at his exquisite queen. An easy smile, lubricated by drink. Esther answers, This is my petition and request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, May the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them tomorrow, and tomorrow I will do what the king has asked and voice my request. Another banquet! King Xerxes laughs. So be it. He raises his glass to Haman, whose eyebrows are raised in delight. Haman doesn't so much leave the palace that day as float out of it on a cloud of elation. He cannot believe his good fortune, and cannot wait to crow about it to as many people as possible. But moments later, he reaches the king's gate, and as Haman watches the officials gathered there bow before him, he sees Mordecai standing upright, staring at him, refusing to bow defiance in his eyes. Rage surges in Haman's blood. How dare he? And after I decreed that because of his insubordination, his people would be destroyed. The ultimate display of power. And yet Mordecai makes him feel impotent. Haman manages to control himself and heads home. Immediately, he sends for his friends and his wife to join him. Do you know how much money I have? He asks them. Without waiting for a response, he tells them, Do you know how many sons I have? This information surely is not news to his wife. Ten, he says anyway. How many men do you know with ten sons? Do you know what my position is in the court of Persia? He asks. His friends, who sometimes feel as though they know less about their own lives than they do about Haman's, look on with feigned but well-practiced expressions of interest. It's the highest. The king himself has honored me, and I am the highest official in the land. His friends and his wife manage an attentive nod. What's more, Haman adds, I've just come from the palace. Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she prepared. 
and I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. He finally stops talking, his words dissolving into the air like smoke. Still, the hangers-on are happy to listen further. None of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife and friends jump at the chance to chime in with the solution. How is it that sycophants can acquire a taste for petulance? Have them build a pole 75 feet tall, one of them says. Ooh, and ask the king tomorrow morning to impale Mordecai on it, another one jumps in, finishing the thought. Yes, says Haman's wife. Then tomorrow evening, go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. Excellent idea. Without delay, Haman orders the pole constructed. That night, as Xerxes lies in bed, he cannot get to sleep. Hours pass. Frustrated, he calls in his attendant and has the official record of daily events brought and read aloud to him. When the attendant asks where to begin, Xerxes says, wherever, let the gods choose, just read, or something to that effect. The record is less than riveting, but it does not bring sleep to the king. Eventually, just as dawn breaks, the attendant reads an entry from five years ago, the day Mordecai informed on two of the king's eunuchs who were plotting to assassinate the king. What honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act, the king asks. It seems that Xerxes does not know which people group Haman has scheduled for execution in the king's name. He is aware that Mordecai is a Jew, but not aware that Mordecai's days are numbered thanks to his own edict. Nothing has been done for him, the attendant replies. Nothing. Such an oversight is highly irregular. Acts like this must be rewarded publicly. But what to do? Tired and short on ideas, King Xerxes asks, Who is in the court? Haman, sire, has just arrived, an attendant responds. So early. Have him enter, the king orders. Haman, as one of the king's seven men, is exempt from the golden scepter rule. As he's ushered toward the king, Haman rehearses the request he's come bearing, the brilliant idea his wife and friends had. By the end of the day, he and Mordecai the Jew will be separated by the length of a 75-foot pole, and Mordecai will have gotten what he deserves. Before Haman can ask for Mordecai's murder, though, the king asks him a question. What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman thinks to himself. Smiling, he tells Xerxes, Well, for the man the king wants to honor, clothe him with a royal garment the king himself has worn, and put him atop a horse the king himself has ridden. Oh, and put a crown on the horse's head. Xerxes raises an eyebrow. And put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials and have that official parade him on the horse through the city square. 
uh, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. He finally stops talking, and the king says, Excellent. Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take with you a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. Mordecai spreads his arms as Haman drapes the purple robe across his shoulders. He waits patiently as Haman leads the horse over to him and tries again to get the crown to stay on its head. Then, atop his royal horse, Mordecai the Jew is led through the city square by Haman the Agagite as onlookers gather. With an unmistakably pained expression, Haman shouts, This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. People ooh and ah, applaud, some even bow. When it's done, Haman rushes home, fuming, his head covered so that he doesn't have to see or speak to anyone on the way. Immediately, he calls his friends and his wife together and tells them everything that happened, his petulance in high gear. But when he finally stops talking, his entourage has a different expression than usual. This is not good. You have allied yourself against the Jews. Now that this Jew is on the rise, your downfall is certain. What? He protests. Why would you say that? I'm... But he's interrupted by a contingent of King Xerxes' eunuchs who've arrived to rush Haman to the banquet Queen Esther has prepared. Esther rises to greet her husband and Haman as they enter the reception hall. Xerxes, again, seems in good spirits, despite his lack of sleep. Haman, though, seems rattled. Having emptied his goblet of wine once or twice, the king asks his wife to make good on her promise and, at long last, voice her request. Queen Esther, he assures her, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, it will be done. Perhaps Esther steals a glance at Haman. Perhaps Haman notices and is struck suddenly by a vague unease. Queen Esther swallows and stands up from the table. Somehow, she must plead for her people, incriminate Haman, but not accuse the king of evil. This is not a small task. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. Her words hang heavy in the air like solid stones. And then, with a flourish of modesty, she adds, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble would not be worth burdening the king. As the words leave her perfect, trembling lips, Esther's face is painted with a collage of adrenaline and relief and fear. There is no going back. She has now made her Jewish identity known. Like Moses before her, 
she has bound herself with her people, come what may. Better to be mistreated along with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Meanwhile, the faces of both of the men come alive with a flurry of their own thoughts and emotions. Xerxes, confused and outraged, trying to figure out what his queen is talking about. Haman, confused and terrified, trying to come to grips with what his queen has just revealed. King Xerxes practically screams, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Apparently, his recent genocidal edict was of little enough consequence that it does not come to mind. Haman, though, knows exactly what Esther is talking about. In an instant, sweat gathers on his forehead as Esther responds to the king, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Xerxes swivels his head around to his highest-ranking official, this fresh fury now channeled in Haman's direction. Haman's stomach drops, dread flooding over him like a vast, unstoppable army. The king stands up, knocking over bowls and goblets, wine staining the tablecloth blood red, and storms out to the palace garden. Haman, his world spinning out of control, watches the king exit and glances back at the queen, frantically weighing his options. He is fully aware that harem protocol dictates no man is to come within seven steps of any woman of the king's, or even to be in the same room alone with her. He is also fully aware, though, that Xerxes does not make his own decisions. He must be influenced. Haman rolls the dice and approaches Queen Esther, begging her for his life, bowing before a Jew. Esther will have none of it, but Haman persists, falling on her, pleading and whimpering. Just then, King Xerxes strides back into the hall. He takes one look at Haman so close to his wife and erupts. Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? At that, the king's guards throw a hood over Haman's face and drag him, screaming, out of the hall. As Xerxes seethes, one of his eunuchs speaks up and offers a piece of information he'd been looking for the right time to share. There is a pole 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. Why would Haman want to kill the one who'd outed his assassins? Was Haman in league with them five years ago? Has he been edging in all this time so that he could take the throne? King Xerxes looks at the eunuch. Impale him on it, he commands. And they do. At that moment, Haman is hauled to his home, where the soldiers take the 75-foot-long spear and ram it through Haman's torso. His eyes widen. He gasps and the soldiers hoist the red-tipped pole with its skewered ornament skyward and drop it in its hole. Haman's body, writhing, slips a few inches down the cylinder until friction bests gravity and it comes to a stop. His limbs flail as Haman tries in vain to grab hold and pull himself up.
That same day, King Xerxes awards Queen Esther Haman's estate. Esther tells her husband that Mordecai is her cousin, and the king puts his signet ring, the same one used to seal the fate of the Jews, onto Mordecai's finger. Esther also puts Mordecai in charge of her impressive new estate. It becomes his home. It occurs to Mordecai, no doubt, that the little cousin he once took care of and protected is taking care of and protecting him. But he's not safe yet. Haman's comeuppance has not solved the Jews' greatest problem. The homicidal edict still stands. In all the commotion at the banquet, nothing regarding the actual decree was resolved. The Jews are still scheduled for annihilation. Xerxes' short-sightedness and distractibility are impressive at times. Esther will have to approach him, uninvited, again, and plead for a resolution. This time, her emotions frayed like the end of a snapped rope. The queen cannot muster the discipline for circumspect strategy, the patience for political maneuvering. And why does it have to be her now? Why isn't her husband frantically righting this wrong? She barges into the throne room, desperate tears in her eyes, falls in front of the king and begs, sobbing, for him to revoke the edict. Behind Xerxes, the guard's fingers tighten around the axe, his eyes on the king's golden scepter. Finally, it lowers toward the supplicant. With blurred vision, Esther sees the scepter move toward her. She touches its tip, rises, gathers herself, and speaks, more coherently this time. If it pleases the king and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. And then, almost as if speaking to herself, Esther says, For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come upon my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Xerxes considers her request. The challenge, of course, is that the edict is irrevocable. Any decree in the king's name is. This situation is unfortunate, but seems beyond repair. He's tried to make things right, after all, and he's not sure what else there is to be done. Look, King Xerxes says, I have given Haman's estate to you, and he was impaled because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring cannot be revoked. Right. That's the issue. But an idea comes to Esther's mind. She and Mordecai get together and pen a new edict. When it's finished, Mordecai calls in all of the royal scribes to copy and to translate it. Duplicates are created for all 127 provinces in every language of the kingdom. Watching the scribes copy down this law makes Mordecai feel powerful, like he's a servant of God himself. The edict does not revoke Haman's, 
nothing can. Instead, it gives the Jews in every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, annihilate every army or militia hostile to them on the 13th day of Adar. Oh, and the right to take their enemies' possessions as the spoils of war. In a few months, the Jews across the kingdom will in fact defend themselves against the relatively few opportunists who still attempt to kill them and steal their homes. An hours-long legalized civil war. Blood will be shed, neighbors will fight and kill one another, the tragic consequence of one man's contagious pride and hatred. But in all the violence, not a single Jew will die. And though they have the right to do so, the children of Israel will not seize any plunder. They have no interest in cashing in on short-term loot. When the fighting commences, and it's made clear that Haman's anti-Semitic sentiments are alive and well, Queen Esther will petition the king for the lives of Haman's sons, the princes of that hatred. Xerxes will consent, and they will be executed in their father's favorite style. The ten of them harpooned on ten unforgiving poles, rising from the earth, standing in sharp contrast to the undulating landscape, a demonstration of justice, authority, power. Every year, for thousands of years to come, during the month of Adar, Jewish people will gather and celebrate this deliverance. They will call the feast Purim, after the dice Haman cast to determine the timing of their extinction, the dice that seemed to fall perfectly, giving them enough time for a guardian, an orphan queen, and a maestro to orchestrate an improbable salvation. Today, though, as Mordecai emerges from Queen Esther's palace clothed in royal blue and white, crowned in gold and wearing a purple linen robe, horses race from the capital bearing riders who bear the edict that will vindicate the Jews. The new proclamation is read across the city, in the courtyards, in the streets, in the city square so recently witnessed a hopeless grief. And the Hebrews rejoice flooding out of their homes, shouting and dancing, their bouncing feet scattering the piles of ash. Justin, one more time, thanks again for listening, truly. Don't forget, the Holy Ghost Stories Patreon launches today. Follow the link in the show notes, and let's do more of this together. Don't wait so that you can make sure to get yourself a patrons-only sticker or t-shirt before it's too late. 
And listen, when someone says to you, Christians need to figure out new ways to communicate, they need to come up with fresh ways to tell stories full of beauty and truth or support people who are, you'll be able to say, oh, I do that. I'm a patron saint of storytelling. So what do you say? Let's tell stories together. I'll see you on Patreon. Patreon.